What is going on, good, beautiful, honorable, righteous people of planet Earth? What a privilege and honor to be with you again. I hope that wherever you are, you're doing well. I'm sending you all of my love, well wishes, good vibes your way. And we have a tremendous episode of the show. We have Dr. Fleet Mall on, and we are talking about how to go beyond fear and become an unstoppable force for good. That is about as good a title as I can possibly imagine. We go into a lot of great... Um, uh, discussion points. We talk about the victim story, how to have radical responsibility, making peace with perpetrators, uh, his amazing story of a 14-year prison sentence and uh, surviving that deadly prison. Prison. We talk about the neurobiology of courage and the neurobiology of fear in uh, neuroplasty, uh, learning to self-regulate the zone of resilience, exploring evil uh, geez, so so I'm going through it so much. Uh, analyzing the power of shame, shame why heal uh, hurt people hurt people, and then also why healed people heal people. And I absolutely love that. We talk about nonviolent communication and so much more. This is an absolutely phenomenal episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. So please do what you can to share this. If you just post it on Facebook, everywhere, any little share, sharing it in a message, it is so helpful. Posting on Instagram, doing a share. This is an absolute battle we are in. We are winning it. The truth will come out the truth will prevail they want you to think that you're alone and you are absolutely not uh, if you are standing on truth on courage on righteousness um, in spirit you are going to be guided and you are leading the way and if people don't want to wake up that's unfortunately their business um, but your job is to lead the way and stay strong and know that you are the leader in your community and situation if you don't see anyone else out there but there are absolutely millions of us so if you want to support the show share it as far and as wide as you can uh, follow me on telegram get on the email list Matt Belair.com. They have deleted my Patreon. So if you were a patron, please go to mattbelair.com. Uh, join a, as a member. You can do so by any donation you want. There's a few options there. When you go to mattbelair.com, you're going to see the, the community. You can join that. Any option, if it's not there, just let me know. I'll make you a link. Um, $1, $3, $5 a month. It, it helps tremendously to keep this thing going. Uh, the Choose Freedom Law Summit is going strong because uh, that kind of tyranny is still going and there are solutions. So there's a solution to everything. Uh, every single thing they're going to throw at you, there is a solution for guaranteed. So we're going to stand our ground and we're going to be totally fine. So um, what else? Uh, for those of you guys who want some support and you really want to get clear in your life purpose, if things are a little bit unclear right now and you need some guidance, check out the Soul Compass course, check out the Quantum Heart Hypnosis or become a member of the Atomic Alchemy Mastermind. That's where you can work one-on-one -on -one with me and some other incredibly powerful and great individuals who are just regular people who want to know the truth, who want to live in integrity, who want the system's accountability and support to live their life purpose, to, to make a positive contribution, and over time leave a legacy on this planet. There's nothing more important right now than integrity and authenticity and doing what is right. And so if you'd like to join one of those calls uh, as my guest, just go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching and uh, fill up the form. Let me know about yourself. Would love to uh, have you in the group and meet some amazing people and also any other way I can support you, just let me know. There's tons of tools and resources for you. Uh, I'd like to thank my sponsor, The Good Inside. If you go to thegoodinside.com forward slash Matt B, M-A-T-T-B, you'll get 50% off their Pure Body Extra. This is a advanced 
zeolite heavy metal detox. Um, something that I've integrated into my life. I've learned more about heavy metals from a variety of guests. And now I have something very simple that I have in my diet that's incredibly helpful. So I use that and the greens and an organic protein. And that's really uh, been helping with just my dietary needs and clarity and keeping me uh, healthy and, and increasing my energy. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I'm, I'm getting stronger. The gym was, uh, I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but it's weird that uh, I've always weighed, the most I've ever weighed is 190 pounds. Now I'm 200 pounds of muscle and I, I never thought I'd ever reach 200 pounds and uh, you know, I'm squat. I don't like, cause I do kind of the same workouts and I'm pretty fit, but it's weird how, you know, I'm, I'm making an evolution in strength, which is, which is fun because I've only got a limited time because before they shut the gym down. So I'm noticing that. And that's, that's fantastic. could be a variety of different things too. Cause I've been using the kettlebell, but uh, who knows? I like to kind of track the, the changes I make to see what happens. So anyway, that's a super sidebar. Uh, the best way you can support the show is to do three kind acts wherever you are in the world. And um, yeah, that's it. So thank you so much for listening. And Let's get into today's episode by coming to a state of peace and coherence. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, every muscle, and every fiber of your being with peace, joy, compassion, faith, courage, and get ready to enjoy this absolutely incredible episode with Dr. Fleet Mall. Hello and welcome to the Mastermind Body and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. As you know, we are currently overcoming mass censorship. If you'd like to support this show, you can become a member at mattbelair.com. Um, you can no longer become a Patreon because Patreon just deleted me. So go over to Matt Belair, um, become a member there if you want to support, share episodes, leave a review, spread the word. But the best thing you can do to support the show is to do three kind acts wherever you are in the world today. Today's guest is an author, meditation teacher, management consultant, trainer, and executive coach who facilitates deep transformation for individuals and organizations through his philosophy and program of radical responsibility. He is a tireless and dedicated peacemaker and servant leader working for positive social transformation and a more just and sustainable global society. He is the founder of Prison Dharma Network, Prison Mindfulness Institute, Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, National Prison Hospice Association, Windhorse Seminars, and others. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fleet Mall. Thank you, Mac. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. That's a very short bio. Um, you know, you've, you've set right. up so, so many um, like institutions and you've been doing this work for such a long time. Um, you've recently released a book. I don't know how recent that is, but um, you know, I'm excited to have you on the show because you have a deep knowledge base, but what's most important is a lot of work in the field with a lot of different individuals. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background with the audience and how you came to setting up all these institutions and traveling and doing all the work that you do. Yeah. The older you get, the longer your bio gets. So I don't mind a short bio. Those takes me feel younger. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I have, I, I do have kind of, um, well, in some ways an unusual background, but I, I think a lot of people of, of my generation can relate with it, but I'm a baby boomer, uh, born in 1949, came of age in the fifties and early sixties and 
I got really caught up in the whole counterculture movement of that time. Um, I graduated high school in 1968, one of the most tumultuous years in U.S. history with all the assassinations and so forth. And and I was just kind of a classic angry young man, you know, just had a big hole in my gut, was trying to fill with anything I could think of. And, and uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwest in a good Roman Catholic family, but we had alcoholism in the family and had different problems. And, you know, just uh, coming out, coming out of those experiences, I had that big hole in my gut and my own propensities towards addiction and substance abuse and uh, and just being angry and all the rest of it. And so I just went headlong into the counterculture in kind of some extreme ways. And, but I was also always a spiritual seeker and I would always been interested in the mind and, and always been a seeker. And, and uh, I kind of figured out I was a, a Buddhist early in high school, back around 1965, 66, started reading some Buddhist texts and writings and, uh, and um, took me a while to find others interested in the same thing. Cause I was in Missouri, which wasn't a hotspot for that kind of thing back then. And uh, still isn't today, probably, although there's a lot more going on. But at any rate, uh, you know, I just kind of pursued this kind of dual path uh, with a lot of craziness on the one hand and, you know, kind of trying to pursue some good things on the other hand. And and before I could untangle all that, I ended up uh, earning my way into a federal prison sentence uh, with a mandatory minimum drug sentence. And I ended up spending uh, 14 years in federal prison. And but before I got there, uh, as I said, you know, I had this kind of split life. So before I got there, I had actually been deeply trained uh, as a meditation practitioner, but also as a teacher and uh, had gotten a master's degree in uh, a three year clinical program that was in integration of both Buddhist and Western psychology. And so I had a lot of training, a lot of education. And when I did land myself in prison, that really completely woke me up. I've been trying to extricate myself from the crazy part of my life and the shadow aspects of my life for some time, but not soon enough, obviously. And but when I did get myself locked up, my son was nine years old at the time. And, you know, it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks, what I'd done to my son and all the selfish decisions I've been making so long, putting his life at risk. And now that he was going to grow up without a dad. And initially I was sentenced to 30 years, no parole. So the next day in the paper, it said I'd be 65 before I had any chance of release. I was 35 then. And it took me a while to figure out that under the old law, I was sentenced prior to 1987 in the federal statutes. You received a lot of good time. Uh, if you stay out of trouble, the time off your sentence. And in fact, you get what's called statutory good time. And you know that up front that that much comes off the end of your sentence. You can lose that by getting in trouble in prison. But if you stay out of trouble, you retain that. And then there's another kind of good time you earn as you go by keeping a job in prison, by staying out of trouble. So eventually I figured out I would serve 18 and a half on the 30 if I stayed out of trouble. But I didn't know that when I got sentenced. In fact, it probably took me another six months of being in prison before I even figured that out. So I pretty much thought my life was over as I'd known it. And even once I figured that out, 18 and a half years in a maximum security prison still looks like forever. And, I, and no surety you're going to survive at all. A lot of violence. And and I was in a maximum security federal prison hospital where not only people died of violence, but they were dying of every kind of illness imaginable. So um, uh, it took about three years for my case to go. I appealed my conviction like most people do. And, and uh, they did knock off one count on appeal. Should have got me a new trial, but it didn't. And uh, but anyway, that reduced my aggregate sentence from 30 to 25. So at that point, then I knew I would serve uh, 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble. And that's why I ended up serving 
14 inside and six months out in a halfway house and under house arrest. So that was from 1985 to 1999. And it was a huge wake up call for me. As I said, I went through a real dark night of the soul through all my trial and sentencing, realized just how I torched my own life and what I'd done to my son and that he was going to grow up without a dad and to see embarrassment and shame I'd brought to my family and how I'd let my spiritual teacher down and my community down. And, you know, I was just really going through it. And I just became radically dedicated to extricating all the negativity out of my life and doing something good with everything good that I'd received from my family and all the training I'd received from my spiritual tradition and so forth. And also, I just wanted to leave a better legacy for my son than just his dad went to prison or maybe even his dad died in prison. And so um, so that became kind of my my really time of intensive training in my life, my monastery time, my ashram time. I was just radically dedicated to my continued education and spiritual development. I was practicing many hours of meditation every day, studying many hours, leading a very disciplined life. Uh, I got a job teaching school in the in the in the prison school. I was helping other inmates learn to read or or their GD or study for college classes, uh, correspondence class, so on. So that was my nine to five job, five days a week, and. Because this was a prison hospital and it was right in the height of the AIDS epidemic. So men were dying under horrendous conditions. And another prisoner and myself with some support from uh, chaplains and one of the psychologists uh, started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere. And uh, as far as we know, and we started in 1987 and uh, we got outside people to come in and train a group of prisoners and we started uh, supporting men who were dying there. And we'd be assigned to a particular patient. And I usually had two or sometimes three patients. That was a lot to have three. But all my meal breaks, I'm up there in the hospital, uh, you know, feeding them, uh, you know, just being a friend, helping them read letters, write letters, call home to family, um, you know, taking them out to the rec yard, taking them to chapel, a lot of my evenings up there, my weekends. Uh, so I dedicated a lot of my time uh, to that service. And it was incredibly profound service because, you know, I think putting someone else's needs in front of your own, you know, for that time I was with them, it wasn't about me, it was about them and what they were going through. And, you know, we shared the fact of being in prison, but they're not only they in prison, they're dealing with a terminal illness and they may die in prison and, uh, and they're isolated from their family and, you know, just, just terrible, terrible suffering. And so, you know, it's it's one of the most transformative things I think any of us can go through is, is being involved in that kind of service where we're really putting someone else's needs front and center, and and not setting our sides, uh, setting our own needs aside in a negative way or self-destructive way, but just in a healthy way, saying, okay, I have my own needs, but they're over here for now. Right now, I'm going to focus on this person and be there for them. And so it was incredibly transformative work, and also it's a confrontation with your own mortality because. You know, you know, there, but for the grace of whatever, you know, higher power God you believe in or force you believe in, there go you, right? You know, uh, and I I had no sense that I would survive my time. A lot of my patients were younger than I was. Some were older, some were similar age. Uh, we had similar backgrounds. I still hadn't been tested for AIDS at that time. And I had led a very promiscuous life and been an IV drug user. And I easily could have had AIDS. I remember one of my early uh, patients, they all became my friends. So really my friend named Lyle. Like myself, he'd been a smuggler, he'd been an IV drug user and a pilot, and and we both had a son, nine years old, same age, by that time, 10 or 11, I guess. And uh, 
and he also had a daughter. And, you know, he, he was an incredible guy. And, and I got to know him a bit before he became a hospice patient, actually. He was already had AIDS. I didn't know it. But he was here for treatment and he got involved in our meditation group. Then they sent him back to the prison where he was from. Eventually, he came back. He was really sick. And then I got assigned as his hospice volunteer. And, and he would just go, this is before the protease inhibitors. So suffering from every opportunistic infection you can imagine and tremendous physical suffering. And he never complained about anything. The only the pain that he shared was about his kids. So as I'm sitting there listening to him talk about that, you can imagine what's coming up for me and learning the discipline to be informed by my own pain, but not get lost in that so I can be there for him, right? Because we had so much in common. And also, you know, I still hadn't been tested for AIDS and I, I could have eased. I mean, he, you know, both of us were, uh, you know, people get AIDS back in the air for all kinds of reasons or still do. Uh, and uh, part part of it is common among uh, among people who are who are gay or have those kind of sexual relations, but it's also from IV drug use and lots of things. So he and I were both heterosexual, but we'd both been involved in IV drug use, and he had AIDS, and I easily could have had it. I did eventually get tested in prison, and it turned out I didn't have it. Uh, I'm very grateful for that. But uh, but anyway, you know, no surety that you're going to survive. So it's a really a confrontation with your own mortality as well as, you know, being in this act of service of putting someone else's needs, at least for the moment ahead of your own to be able to be there in service. So incredibly transformative work. And also got deeply involved in my own substance abuse, uh, uh, healing and recovery, being involved in 12-step recovery, uh, very active in that for those 14 years. Uh, started a meditation group in the prison chapel and led that twice a week for 14 years. And, you know, but at night, you go, you get locked up back in your, in your unit. And I'd be back there at nine o'clock and, you know, I'd, I'd study and read for three hours. And then I'd, I'd practice meditation for a couple hours late into the night when I was quiet, I was only sleeping four or five hours a night. I'd get up very early in the morning and practice. Um, I, I seem to be able to get away with sleeping four or five hours a night there for about 10 years of my time. I, I couldn't begin to do that now, but somehow I did it then. I was leading this very disciplined yogic lifestyle, but also a, a, a life of service. And, it ended up just being an incredibly transformative time of my life in this incredibly negative environment, one an environment where it's just full of anger and violence. And, you know, it's, it's the worst environment you could possibly imagine. But thank goodness I came in with a lot of skills and the right mindset and a good practice. And I was actually able to leverage it to be a time of tremendous personal transformation for me. Holy smokes. Wow. Well, that's uh, that sounds like a very challenging experience and you made the absolute best of it you know you've your book i love the title of it it's radical responsibility and one of the things i've kind of said and shared on the podcast is what i believe in a quote-unquote awakened person is they have a few characteristics uh, but one of them is just being responsible for everything that comes to you because if you're responsible for it then you can change it um but if you're a victim then you can't change it you can't respond to it you can't adapt so i feel like that is is really key but your the tagline under it, I think is amazing. It says how to move beyond blame, fearlessly live your highest purpose and become an unstoppable force for good. You know, I absolutely love that. And, and as I go through the chapters of the book, it looks like there's a lot of very useful information in there. So I'd love for you to kind of share, like, you know, I, I think most people that listen to this show or resonate with these kinds of teachings, the regular people, they have responsibilities in the world. You know, they want to kind of heal these traumas that they have. They want to live um, their life purpose. They want to know what that is. They want to contribute to society, but they need to make money and they are trying to navigate these two worlds. And so um, can you share a little bit about, you know, 
how you would suggest to that person to first get into a sense of peace, whether it's, you know, the frustrations with daily life or victim mentality or being in fear, and then how to like find a purpose and, and, and do something positive. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want to say something, first of all, kind of how that philosophy arose for me. So uh, very early on in my prison time, I realized I was in an incredibly negative environment and uh, that if I didn't proactively do something to make it not so, I would come out broken and bitter like most people come out of prison. And, and or I'd end up being very negative while I was there. I didn't want to live that way in prison. You know, it's, you know when, when, when people are incarcerated, when, when someone stumbles in or gets into the you know, criminal justice system and, and uh, there's this, the level of shaming and demonization, it's, just, it's like you're buried under a mountain of shaming and demonization. And, and so what human beings do to just to survive is they tend to armor up with their own victim story, with bitterness, with anger. And so, you know, I mean, the, the classic ritual in prison, when you meet somebody new is you got, you go out for a walk in the yard and they share their victim story. You share your victim story, right? Yeah. My fall partner did this. My lawyer screwed me over this group, you know, and everybody's walking around with this big victim story. And, uh, you know, even though society is perceiving the people in prison as the perpetrators, they perceive themselves as as victims. And of course, many of them have been victimized terribly in their lives. Most people that end up in prison have had terrible things happen to them in their childhood and so forth. It's no wonder they end up there. But nonetheless, you know, where does that go? And, you know, after doing that a couple of times, I didn't really I certainly didn't want to hear my own victim story anymore. And I didn't really want to hear other people's. That's not very compassionate, but it's just not where I wanted to, to have my mind be. Right. And, and I realized that it really needed to do something proactive to not end up there. Um, so uh, I realized, I, and I, fortunately, I had enough training before I went into prison that I realized really the only way for me to get through this experience and get beyond it, if I was going to have any life beyond it, was to really embrace 200% ownership for having got myself in there. I mean, that was just absolutely clear to me. You know, there were lots of people, if I wanted to focus on that, I mean, when the government prosecutes you, they don't play by the rules. They break all the rules. They break all the laws. They play hardball. They just go after you, right? And, and of course, I did a lot of people's time. You know, I, I got a big sentence, an old parole sentence, because I refused to testify against anybody. And I didn't do that because I was trying to be a stand-up guy. I did it because I was a Buddhist, and I just couldn't see. It didn't match my values. Oh, somebody else is going to go do the time instead of me, and their family is going to suffer instead of me. So, I just didn't do that. So I became the designated kinpin, so to speak. And so I did a lot of people's time. So I could have focused on all that. And I just made an absolute decision not to focus on any of that. In fact, even some of the, you know, close associates, almost what I people I considered friends that kind of stabbed me in the back a bit. I I did practice with them all the time, just trying to release any anger and wish the best for them. And and I got to the place where I hold, I have no enmity or, or ill feeling toward anybody at all. And I got there long before I got out of prison, but certainly I came out of prison without having any enmity or any resentment towards anybody, really just wishing everybody the best. But that takes work. It takes practice. But I was dedicated to that. And I saw that that was the only way out and, and to any kind of real freedom and empowerment for me was that level of, of ownership. So I usually call radical responsibility voluntarily embracing 100% ownership or responsibility for each and every circumstance we face in life. And that includes the ones we can see we had something to do with creating or allowing or setting ourselves up for, or they happened just because we weren't paying attention or whatever, as well as the ones that everyone would agree, just, you know, we had absolutely nothing to do. They fell out of the sky, landed in our lap, we're a completely innocent victim. But even those taking ownership for that, not to blame ourselves, 
but to empower ourselves to live from choice and live from the creative place of what can I do? You know, when, you know, whatever circumstance we're in, no matter how unjust or horrible or, or criminal or terrible it might be, at some point, the most salient question is what am I going to do with it? Am I going to let it take me down? Or am I going to find the most creative way I can respond to this situation to move my life forward in the best way possible? And, in, you know, and in win-win ways with, with others, because, you know, operating in my own long-term interest, which usually is in, in the interest of everyone else as well. So, you know, is that focusing my energy where I can do the most good, which is really with my own choices and my own decisions. And it has nothing, the difficult thing about this for people to get this, we've all been so enculturated into a culture of blame and shame. And we're, we're almost convinced, even if we don't cognitively think that way, unconsciously, we're pretty convinced that when something happens, somebody's got to be to blame. And so, you know, if I don't find somebody or something else to blame, I'm going to get blamed. And I don't want to get blamed for anything else. I've been blamed enough in my life. I've experienced enough shame in my life. So we just naturally deflect. We just almost instinctually deflect responsibility and tend to, you know, want to blame anybody or anything when something's going wrong or we're not happy about something. And the problem with that, I mean, it's kind of the human condition. We don't need to feel bad about it. But the problem is in doing so, we give away our power. Because when, if I'm convinced that, you know, things aren't going well for me, I'm, I'm unhappy, I'm upset about something, or I'm in a bad circumstance, and I'm convinced it's caused by somebody else or something else, then I just gave that someone or something power over my internal state and ultimately my life, because I can't control other people. I can't control the world. And, you know, so I don't get to change until they change, right? So I just continually giving away my power, and we all do that all the time. So this has nothing to do with blame. It's not about blaming ourselves. Obviously, it's not about blaming others, obviously. And it's not about blaming ourselves. And it's not about blaming victims. It's about the choice to, it's really about radical empowerment, putting my energy where it can do the most good. And, you know, that may be, I mean, terrible stuff. This isn't any way taken away from the fact that people are victimized. Horrible things happen to people. Incredibly criminal, unjust, terrible heartbreaking things happen to people. And they may need to have that validated. They may need to get a lot of support. And this isn't about me going to somebody else and saying, you need to get off your victim trip. That would be ridiculous. This is about, you know, myself and how I look at these things myself. And I may need a lot of support. And I may, you know, I may even need to seek justice, but doing that from a creative empowered place of choice rather than from a victim mindset is very different. And, you know, I think, in many situations, it, it can be for, for people when really horrible, horrible things happen to people, terrible physical violations, destructive things, being able to rise to the occasion and get beyond the victim mindset is absolutely heroic. And, and we should have tremendous compassion for them and for ourselves. But I think we can all realize that if they stuck in that victim mindset, no matter how reasonable it might be, at the very least, it's going to be very limiting to their life to stay stuck in that place and not find some way to embrace it. Maybe this shouldn't happen to anybody, but it, it's here. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to move beyond it? How am I going to embrace it, learn from it, move beyond it in some way, transform it? And there's countless examples of people who've taken horrible tragedies and transformed them in some way of, of bringing good to the world and good to others, right? So, so that's kind of what this is about. But it really, it ties into our internal landscape of all the internalized shame we've experienced and trauma we've experienced and everybody has this none none of us come through childhood unscathed right tragically many of us get a lot more trauma a lot more shaming than others and tragically often that's around the fault lines of injustice and race and so forth but but we all have it it's just part of the human condition 
And so it's so easily, we were so easily triggered into that and, and triggered into this kind of fear and survival way of living our life because job one for any species is survival, right? So we're hardwired for survival and to, to pay more attention to negativity and threat than anything else. So our brain can be set up to be negative and, and focused on fear, but we're also conscious human beings and we can rise above that. But I think it's really helpful to understand our own internal landscape to be able to do that. So that's why in the book, the, the first chapter is all about how to connect with our own innate goodness, the fact that we're not broken, that we don't need fixing, counter to everything we've heard in our life. You know, our whole consumerist culture is based on a message, you're not enough, but if you buy this, you just might be okay, right? So despite all the lies we've heard ever since we were little tykes, you know, it's not true. We're not broken, we're not fixing, we're beautiful, intelligent, intrinsically good, intrinsically whole human beings. So the first chapter is that, and the second chapter is about learning a mindfulness practice, some kind of awareness and contemplative mindfulness practice so we can begin to understand our own internal landscape and not just get ambushed by it all the time. And then the next chapter is about emotional intelligence, which is more of the same. So the first three chapters kind of set us up to have the, you know, be able to cultivate that through contemplative practices, not just the belief, the conceptual belief in our innate goodness, but to drop into the depth of our being and actually experience that goodness in an undeniable way, which creates a, a foundation of resilience and strength and courage in our life that allows us then to look at the reality, look at the tough stuff, look at, you know, really face our lives and to be able to own things without getting triggered into blaming or self-shaming, right? So we really need that, that foundation of resilience and confidence in our own innate goodness so that we can face the tough stuff and own things without that triggering us back into self-shaming or blaming. Because this is nothing about self-shaming or blaming. It's just about where are my choices? You know, what, 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 what can I do? Where, where, where's my, what are my options? What can I do? And from that creative place in prison, you know, in prison is probably the most um, disempowered environment you could ever be in, right? A maximum security prison, sociologists call it a total institution, which means it's like a totalitarian state. Resistance is futile. And the place where I was, they had the whole psychiatric wing. If you tried to buck the system there, you'd be back on a concrete bunk and four point restraints, getting hosed down at night, you know, naked and getting pumped full of halidol and Thorazine. I mean, literally. So there, there was no way to buck the system directly, right? So, I, and, and if you asked them, anytime you asked, you know, the authorities, the guards or the administrators, could we try this or could we start? The answer was always no, no to everything. And they'd say, oh, somebody did that before, you know, and somebody abused it. Well, they always had a story. So how do you get anything done in that environment? And I, you know, this was a big chunk of my life. I wanted to do something with it. And I ended up being able to start all kinds of programs and start two national organizations and catalyze two national movements, all for my prison cell. And I did it based all on not struggling with people or demonizing people or trying to manipulate people, but from this place of radical responsibility and then just relating to everybody, my fellow prisoners and the staff alike as human beings and finding out, okay, what's the most skillful way to communicate with people and try to make good things happen? And, uh, and it worked. It was a great training ground, actually. For uh, for living the rest of my life when I came out. Holy, well, you, that's an incredibly powerful story, and I love how your your book kind of works on the fundamentals. You know, I love how at the beginning it talks about you know shifting from fear based conditioning into the habits of courage, compassion, and positive change. Like anything, you need solid fundamentals to get to the end result where you're actually designing your life. You're making a plan. And you know that it's aligned with your values and who you are and how you want to serve in this world. And you know, being in prison from your story in 
and how I can relate to it, you know, coaching people in the real world, like with all this freedom and all this opportunity to create a life plan, doing something that you love. It's, it's not about, you know, what you can get from it. You're trying to give from a place that is authentically you that will support your community. And it's amazing to see how the universe will respond to that because it's not uh, materialism based, but you can see how the world will actually support you in that mission. And it, it is more fulfilling and it's more rewarding to kind of build that way rather than say, I'm going to get this materialism first. I'm going to get all of this amount of money. And once I get that amount of money, then I'm going to shift over to this fulfillment side and who I, you know, know I am inside and how I know I can contribute. And it's kind of this backwards pursuit. And so I'd love for you to uh, speak a little bit on the, the overcoming uh, the fear-based conditioning and, you know, how do we get into habits of courage and compassion? And then ultimately, you know, getting into that place where we're, you know, creating a, a map and a plan for our life dedicated and, and um, directed toward like who we truly are based on who we are, not outside sources, not based on fear, limitation, or lack. Yeah, yeah, great, Matt, absolutely. So that's why in the book, I, I really go pretty deeply into the psychology, the physiology, the psychology, and the, and the current neuroscience and the, the neurobiology related to all of this, because uh, I, I've always liked uh, what Tony Robbins said. He he says um, he he wants in his training. He's trying to help people become what he calls practical psychologists. Like you don't have to become a PhD psychologist, but to understand enough about our human psychology so that you can actually work with you know how you understand how it works and you can work with it and not be worked by it, right? And so we really need to understand the, at least the basics of how our physiological system works and how we've been impacted by trauma and how the human condition is, to, is a setup to lead a fear and survival-based life. When, when we understand that and really have an awareness practice, so we can really get to know it, not just conceptually like we read about in a book, but we get to know it directly moment to moment through our you know, awareness practices and so forth. We really start to understand ourselves and what makes us tick, right? Then that, that gives us the freedom to be able to override some of that uh, fear and survival-based conditioning and start acting from a different place and acting from a different source, right? So it is about, um, you know, there is actually a neurobiology of courage as well as there being a neurobiology of fear. Uh, sometimes we talk about the uh, transmitter oxytocin, which has been called the bonding hormone or the love hormone, but that's a one neurotransmitter that's released when we're picking up enough sense of safety through neuroception, you know, our nervous system is scanning the world around us all the time. And what's it scanning for? It's scanning for threat. And, and until we get messages of safety, we're back here and, you know, being cautious, survival mode, right? Avoidance. And if we're getting the messages of safety, you know, with someone we know, they, they look or feel like us, or maybe we even know them, or it's a friend we're willing to approach, maybe even give somebody a hug, right? And that approaching behavior is triggered by the release of this hormone oxytocin. And it's actually a stress hormone. So, so there's, there's lots of way when you understand how your own physiological makeup works, that you can work with it and realize that there's certain neurochemical profiles that we can learn to sort of encourage, which actually supports courage and supports resilience and supports compassion. You know, one of the key findings in neuroscience over the last three decades is that of neuroplasticity. Previously, we thought by the time you're an adult, the brain you got is the brain you got. And if anything, it's going to diminish in its capacity over the lifespan. We now know that's categorically untrue. The brain can grow and thrive throughout the lifespan, even 
somebody becomes a centenarian, the grain can still be growing and thriving and it continually change. It's not as plastic or by plastic means changeable fluid. Uh, it's not as plastic as when we're little kids, which is why childhood experiences so imprint so deeply and can really impact our lives. But as adults, it still is completely changeable. And two things that allow the brain to be more changeable, more neuroplastic, are mindfulness training, mind training, and also physical exercise. And mind training, mindfulness training, not only helps the brain become more changeable, but it nudges the brain in the right direction of uh, developing a more positive outlook, uh, having better uh, cognitive balance, emotional balance, emotional control, you know, just being more in charge of our own uh, behaviors and so forth. And so developing this understanding and then having, having awareness practices, especially those that are done in a very embodied way. I teach a model of, of meditation now called neurosomatic mindfulness, which is a deeply embodied approach to the practice of mindfulness and awareness meditation. You know, Mindfulness awareness meditation is pretty simple. You, you, I mean, you can do it in all kinds of ways, but the basic practice is usually you sit down and you decide to place your attention somewhere. In this case, usually with feeling the body and the breath. And when the mind wanders, you bring it back. The mind wanders, you bring it back. Every time you bring it back, you're training the mind to wake up and, and be more present, right? That's basic mindfulness training. But doing it in a really deeply embodied way, we start and get in touch with the whole internal landscape of the body in a physical way, a deeply felt physical way to begin with. But then that gets us in touch with our emotional body and then starts to get us in touch with the subtle energy body. And we become more awake to that and we can begin to organically self-regulate. You know, a lot of people may have had an experience with, uh, with biofeedback where they hook you up to a heart monitor and you're looking at a, a digital or analog representation of your heartbeat. And just looking at that, because you got that visual feedback loop going on, you can regulate your own heart rate up and down just with your mind. It's very easy to do. Or they have uh, neurofeedback machines, which are connected to your brain waves, and often they're used very effectively in therapy. And again, you're getting a visual representation of your brain waves, and you can learn to self-regulate your brain waves that way. Well, with these contemplative practices, you can learn to do all that without the external reference point because you're feeling you're becoming so much more aware of your internal landscape. And you can feel when your brain's making that shift from the noisy neural default mode network of the brain, that noisy thing that's constantly ruminating, worrying about the past and the future and all our opinions, the part that creates all our stress and suffering from that to what's called the task positive network, which stabilizes our attention and gives us access to deep states of awareness. So we can learn to actually self-regulate our own brain because we're, we feel that shift and we feel it in the body and we feel the change in the cognitive activity and we feel the change physiologically and emotionally. So the powers of the human mind and the human body are really quite amazing. And all this is about getting more in the driver's seat of our own life. So where we can override, you know, fear is intelligent. There's nothing wrong with fear. Fear is really intelligent and keeps us alive. And by embracing fear, that can give us a lot of energy to do a lot of powerful things. But it's not getting trapped in fear. And we have the ability to, you know, we have limitless abilities as human beings. We have no idea what the limits of human potential are. But it's really all about, it begins with saying, I'm going to embrace uh, responsibility for my own evolution, my own life, and the results I create in life with and for myself and others. And and I'm going to do the work to educate myself to be able to do that in the most powerful way. So by, by stepping into that place of choice and ownership 
And then the technologies that are available to us today and the amount of knowledge. I mean, you used to have to climb over three mountain passes in a Himalaya somewhere to receive these kind of teachings. And now it's everywhere. It's all available. And so, you know, what we can do in our lives is, is just, you know, it's pretty amazing, right? So, uh, and, and it's necessary because the flip side of this is we're all traumatized. You know, so many of us have incredible traumas from our background. We've all, we're all going through this trauma of the pandemic. Uh, people all over the world are traumatized by war and refugee situations and genocide. I mean, the, the human realm is a really, really tough place. And we have historical trauma and we have generational trauma. And we need to realize that's there and that we need to do our healing work. Because if we don't do the healing work and step into embracing you know, our own capacity to self-heal and then transform, then we're going to be driven by all that stuff. We're just be, we're just going to be another person, you know, leading a life that's somewhat mechanical and, and somewhat conscious, somewhat unconscious, and really being, you know, that the world is doing it to us, you know, and when we feel like life is happening to us instead of life is actually there for us, right? And so it's it's a major shift that we make of this sense of embracing choice, but then you know, the possibilities are just wide open and there's so much available to all of us today. I think it's a really, it's a very challenging time to be alive, obviously. I mean, really challenging. Some ways that you can see ways in which there's so many good things happening, but you can also see ways in which the world's getting really crazy. The politics are getting so polarized and we have the things like the pandemic and, and economic uncertainty and the climate crisis. I mean, things could get a lot worse. So it's a very challenging time to be alive, but it's also a really exciting time to be alive because you know, we're in this almost, you know, human evolution is something normally you see over spans of thousands and tens of thousands of years. It's like we're living right in the midst of this period of, of, of really rapid evolutionary change. And so I think it's a it's an exciting time to be alive. And and all we kind of got to do is kind of make the choice to get in the game. And then there's so much support for us. I mean, there's so many people like you doing the work you're doing, and there, there's so much available to us and so much support as long as we choose to you know, get on that pathway to self-transformation and and doing it uh, from that place of choice rather from that place of uh, you know sensing like uh, you know, and it's natural that I feel I've been victimized by life, and then I have a sense of entitlement, and the world owes me something, and life owes me something, and we live from a place of resentment and fear instead of living in that place of joy and gratitude and humility. Right? It's it's really a choice. Sorry for the long rant. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. And I enjoyed it. You you brought up a lot of great points. It's definitely a, a very challenging time to live. And for or from your circumstance and your life experience, it's how you respond to it. You know, you think about Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and having a, you know, uh, an experience being locked up in a concentration camp, things like that, and how he responded to it. And with these great challenges, that's really what we're left with. And it's the only thing that we have always had is our, our ability to respond. That makes us who we are. That's that's how we create who we are. So we don't always get to choose what happens to us, what environment we're in, what family we're in, uh, these outer things that where, where when they happen, we could easily create and install a victim mentality and 95 percent of people in the world have had trauma there's some people that i know that have kind of scooted through and, and been okay but most people have experienced some sort of trauma and will experience challenge through life but when we become responsible and respond to what's happening we become more resilient and we increase our capacity for creativity for solutions because 
you know, I think there's this quote that like, uh, was it easy times make soft men and hard, hard times make hard men or something like that. Um, you know, they're more adaptable, they're more creative. And so that's kind of what we're experiencing right now. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, someone who is going through these current times and they're aware of what's going on and they see what's kind of projected because, you know, you're able to read the tea leaves through what's posted on media and what's going on. Um, we say, okay, there's probably challenging times ahead. How can I navigate this so I am putting something positive into the environment, but I'm also um, looking after my family and my responsibilities. So, you know, you talk a little bit about creating your life and, um, you know, living a life of purpose. I feel like we wouldn't be in this situation if people had meaningful vocations. You know, in Buddhism, they talk about right livelihood. If we ensured that what we did for our community and for our work was supportive for others, we probably wouldn't be in this situation because there are many jobs that don't really offer anything, but even potentially cause harm or don't do anything productive for our fellow man. Uh, but often they can be very high paying. And so we make these compromises. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how we can begin designing our life if it still applies when everything is, is shaky and you know we're not sure of our finances and, and how things may go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think focusing on resilience is really important now. I, I um, uh, organized a global resilience uh, summit uh, just as the pandemic was kicking off in May of 2020, last year. And we had 32,000 people show up for it. And we did it again this past uh, uh, May with a similar number. And and I'm working on another summit now that's going to be for first responders and their families called the Global First Responder Resilience Summit. Because I just think there's a lot of technology now available to us and learning how physiologically, psychologically, how we can become more resilient physically, emotionally, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. A lot of the common sense stuff that just taking good care of ourselves, right? Exercise, nutrition, you know, getting enough rest all things we can do to take care of ourselves physically, which is also healthy for our brain, but then really using our brain so it's continuing to grow and thrive and having good relationships and doing what we need to do to be able to, you know, stay uh, emotionally resilient and, and uh, you know, doing things that, that give us greater depth spiritually and give us that sense of meaning and purpose in life. There's just so many things we can do to keep helping ourselves become more resilient. And, you know, it's not about, you know, I mean, I, I, I definitely kind of in, am in the realm of, uh, you know, kind of mental toughness and that thing. But I, I, I say with a caveat, because in some ways, I, I, I think actually there, there's a in my spiritual tradition, there's, there's a liturgy where we where we that's related to kind of the feminine principle and talks about, you know, help me learn to become both gentle and tough, both gentle and tough. And tough does not not hard, like brutal, but it's like resilient, like strong, resilient. Right. But at the same time, compassionate and, and being willing to be vulnerable and gentle, you know, and this thread runs throughout the book, Radical Responsibility, the importance of self-compassion, because it's not about beating myself into becoming some superhuman. It's really the opposite. It's, a, it's the ground is tremendous self-compassion, self-acceptance and developing a, a, a kind of an attitudinal framework of tremendous kindness and gentleness toward my own being and realizing there's nothing wrong with me. And I don't need fixing. And the more I can relax into the depth of my being, all this, in fact, the ultimate source of resilience for me is really that innate basic goodness that we can actually contact through contemplative practices where we drop into the depth of our being. We get quiet enough and still enough and we drop into the very depth of our being and we realize the truth of our innate goodness. And to me, that becomes the ultimate source of resilience. But there's all kinds of other things we can do 
to help ourselves become more resilient. We need to do our healing work. You know, like you said, we all have trauma and we need to recognize that and, and get the support we need to do the healing. And we can do a lot of it through self-healing. I mean, just basic mindfulness meditation is a self-healing practice. There's also lots of different kinds of self-compassion practices. So there's lots of practices we can do on our own that are self-healing. And then for some of us, it may be good to work with a therapist or, you know, do some of the, the body-based psychotherapies out there like somatic experiencing or EMDR and different things like that. So if we need healing work, we need to embrace responsibility and do that, right? And, and, and so everything we can do to uh, kind of become more resilient because resilient being can then create a resilient society. And, you know, I do think things could get really rough. I hope they don't. But and I hope we wake up and continue to wake up so we can turn this climate change thing around. But it's pretty likely things are going to get pretty bad before we're able to do that. And that could create a lot of economic upheaval, political upheaval, social upheaval. And, you know, I think we're going to need some super resilient people around when that's happening, because, you know, when when chaos is happening, everybody else is losing their mind, the, the, the power of one person who's not, you know. And that's kind of what first responders are trained to do. They come into a space and with a calm, clear voice, they just, you know, and people, oh, okay, somebody's in control, somebody's in charge, and everybody else can relax a bit. And, you know, we're going to need a lot of resilient people. In fact, I need, I think we need to be training kind of super resilient people who can can be those leaders that are going to help, help all of us, you know, reorganize and self-organize around creating resilient communities. There's, there's so much that, in our, you know, it's not about demonizing human culture. We all, we've been doing the best. We're, we're, we've actually, you know, we're doing better than we've ever done. Even with all the problems we have, if you look back historically, it's always been, you know, it used to be much more brutal, right? And, you know, so things, th we, we are evolving. You know, I, that's one thing I kind of have a problem with some of the, I've been involved in social justice work my whole life, but some of the current social justice milieu on the left tends to want to demonize and indict humanity over a thing about how bad we are and how terrible we are. And, you know, and, and it's like, how far back in history are you going to go? Because, you know, values and we evolve, things change. And what's, what's, uh, what's not okay now was perfectly okay 10 years ago. So you go indict somebody and what's this a hundred, a thousand, 10,000 years ago from our perspective. Yeah, it wasn't okay that that's was, but that we're evolving as human beings and we're evolving and actually we're really actually less violent we've ever been. We've, we've gotten rid of more illnesses than ever. The child mortality rate has gone way down. We still have huge problems, but in many ways, we're, we are evolving and we've progressed a lot. The, the biggest problem now is population and climate change. So we have to find some way to live differently on the earth so that we can sustain human culture on this earth. Um, but, you know, we are progressing. And so I think, you know, if, if we, you know, the thing about if, if we, feel bad about ourselves as human beings and we're afraid of ourselves and afraid of others and we buy into that kind of weird twist on the judeo-christian ethic or it was primarily calvinist christian i'm not here to beat up any religion i think it, at their core all the great religious traditions have wisdom and beauty in them but there was a kind of theological thread about the flawed nature of humanity that really gave this fundamental view there's something fundamentally wrong with us and when you have that view then you create a culture that is based on absent some coercive threat of shaming, ostracization, punishment, that human beings won't behave well, they're dangerous. So you end up creating fear-based institutions that are all based on punishment reward. And you, you create a whole culture that's infused with shaming and blaming and punishment reward. And, 
And we need to evolve out of that. We know how to we know how to do that because people have been evolving out of that for thousands of years. It just has not become the dominant cultural strain. And so I think things are changing and moving so quickly now that it's really time for us to take ownership, not only ownership for ourselves and our own lives, but start reclaiming ownership for our institutions. Instead of abdicating authority out to every other kind of institution and then complaining about it, we need to get re-involved with our neighbors and with our local communities and, and start you know, creating new networks of support because if things start to fall apart, we're gonna have to have find ways to support each other and, and reorganize and, and doing it would be a good thing to do anyway because you know, this idea of abdicating responsibility where, you know, we've gotten to where we don't even have extended families anymore, hardly, you know, it's just me and what I want and the government and taxes, you know, and the hell with everybody else kind of thing, right? And that's a crazy way to live and it's an unsustainable way to live. So uh, there, there's so much opportunity to begin rethinking about what's what's the world we would like to live in? And and because we completely have the capacity to do that. And it's all about this internal shift beyond fear and survival-based thinking, getting out of the psychology of shame and blame, and instead finding that 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 finding our our innate wiring that we already have for compassion and courage and mindfulness and wakefulness, and then beginning to join with others and creating communities of that. And we can really reshape the culture and reshape the world. And I think we're being called to do that in, in a major way. And there, there's so many people answering that call, even though it seems like things are getting darker in many ways. There are so many people answering the call and waking up that actually I, I feel tremendously hopeful. Wow. Well, you know, I love all that. I think we might have a little bit of a um, a different point of view on some of the stuff with the, the climate change and the population from my studies of the World Economic Forum and Bill Gates and all those people. But you... Uh, touched on something I think really important is that the accountability has to be with the people and we put them to these institutions. Um, but then when you pick those institutions apart, it's always this like power. Um, you can find a power trail and you can find a money trail and you may or may not agree with the direction. And so the solution is always at the ground level. And if we can take accountability for ourselves and then we can get to like-minded community, uh, we can really uh, provide some solutions because on the one side of things where I have looked, it is pretty frightening and what can be engineered is, is, is quite frightening, but no matter what it is, whatever the, the problem may be, the solution is always going to be yourself, your own responsibility for how, for what you may uh, experience in your life, but then community having that community uh, working together for that same goal. And so what is that goal? Is that goal peace? Is it tolerance? Is it, uh, you know, clean food, water, and shelter? Is it survival? And so we need to get to that place where we are whole and complete. And I really love what you keep saying there is like, we're perfect as we are. And so how, how do you, um, speak about that, that impulse for growth. And that's how I've kind of put it is that, you know, if you look at a, a two-year-old or a six-year-old or a 10-year-old, you're complete as you are. And even when you get in your twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, you're still essentially a child at heart. You know, you're still living in the mystery. You don't know everything. You're still curious, um, but you're evolving. You want to grow. So at, at one point, you're perfect as you are. And at the other, you're like a flower or a tree that's continuously growing and experiencing life. And as you do that, your 
desire to experience or what you'd like to share with the world will change. And if it's alignment with who you are, it's going to be a beautiful expression. Um, but if you let the outside sources kind of steer that ship or that creation, it might not be aligned to who and who and what you truly are. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that balance of, of growth in the process and how we can say, okay, you know, this is where we are now. I can, I can make peace with that. And uh, how would I like to grow as an individual? Well, I think you stated it quite beautifully, beautifully. And I think that is a really important distinction because, you know, in various traditions, we talk about kind of the relative level and the absolute level. So at the absolute level, we're, we are perfectly fine, just as we are and perfect the way we are. And we're life forms and we're designed to grow and thrive. So some people say, you know, like we do change programs. Well, why would you want to change? Or even some of the prison programs we do are helping people see how to change some things. So like, why would I change? People are perfect. Well, well, yes, we start from that ground that we are perfect, absolutely perfect the way we are. And, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, we're not designed to grow and thrive, right? And and we're perfect the way we are. It doesn't mean that all our behaviors are perfect, anything like that. It just means there's not anything fundamentally wrong with us. And it's really, we will naturally grow and thrive in beautiful ways when we get the fear out of the way. When we get the shame out of the way, when we get when we heal the shame and trauma and get the fear out of the way, we will naturally grow and thrive in beautiful ways, right? It's just like, you know, if you plant a seed of a plant, a flower, an oak tree, whatever, and under the right conditions and water it, nurture it, it's going to grow into a beautiful tree, a beautiful plant, whatever, right? So so we all we all have that capacity, right? And and it's it's really recognizing that, you know, what am I here for? I mean, what, what is this great mystery of life? None of us really know how we got here or what it's all about. I mean, we have our different religious ideas, theologies, philosophies, and so forth, but it's really a great mystery. But here we are, and what are we going to do with it, right? And and so, you know, if what are we here for if not to, to thrive and grow and explore and create and, and you know, you know, the, 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 the military commercial, you know, be all you can be, you know, it's kind of a hackneyed phrase these days, but, you know, we're here to thrive and evolve and, and be the expression uh, of ourselves and, and the ground out of which we've arisen culturally and, and our family legacy and as human beings and so forth. So, uh, you know, so it's really about getting what's in the way out of the way so, so that we can thrive. And what's in the way is the fear and survival-based conditioning. There's a frame that I think is helpful um, to get a sense of this landscape for ourselves. And it's, uh, Dan Siegel came up with a term called the window of tolerance. And, and I like that very much. I, also, I and others also call it the zone of resilience sometime. And that's the kind of bandwidth of our life where we can be in a responsive relational mode to life, right? We can be responding consciously to life in a, in a good way. And then when we get triggered out of that, we get triggered into fear and habitual fear and survival-based reactivity. And we either get triggered into shutting down, which is hypoarousal. That means our physiology is going into shutdown, too much parasympathetic branch response. Or we get triggered into hyperarousal, where we start getting really upset and acting out. We either go into aggressive behaviors or rigid behaviors, and that's too much fight or flight, too much sympathetic response, right? And we all know we get emotionally triggered. And we all know we don't operate at our best when we're emotionally triggered. In fact, when we're emotionally triggered, we often do and say things that cause us a lot of grief and a lot of trouble. Because when we're when we're in that fear and survival-based response, we're under the control of the survival part of our brain, and we're losing access to the smart part of our brain, the wise part of our brain. So when we think about that bandwidth, that zone of resilience, where we're able to respond to life from our best self, for all of us, that shrinks over the lifespan. You know, you talked about little kids, two, three years old. It's wide open for them, completely uninhibited, fearless, open, creative, right? 
And then with the bumps and bruises of life, you know, oh, that was, I got shame for that. Oh, that was embarrassing. Oh, that hurt. We start shrinking and all of our lives shrink. And then trauma shrinks it even more. Tragically, people that suffer from PTSD, it gets very small. They can even become agoraphobic and not even be able to leave their homes because it's too triggering. So for all of us, the work is expanding that, right? So we can reclaim our lives and live more fearlessly, live with greater courage and with greater compassion and greater vulnerability, not naive vulnerability, but just openness and genuineness, right? So so how do we do that? How do we, how do we reclaim that? Well, there are some, you know, kind of, superhuman performance people that will say, do something that terrifies you every day. Well, the idea there is to reclaim your life and to expand that. Well, you know, maybe just do something that at least makes you uncomfortable every day, right? So it's the idea of lean into the edges of your zone of resilience or window of tolerance, and then have a place you can come back to where you feel okay, you feel good. Like, you know, this is home base. I know how to be here. I know how to be okay. Maybe it's physiological. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's a visualization. Maybe you do it through meditation. Maybe it's just a way to be in your body. But you know you have that home base. And then lean into that which feels too uncomfortable. Which again, lean in, touch it, feel it, come back to home base. Lean in, come back. The great trauma therapist, Peter Levine, calls it pendulating, like a pendulum. So you lean into discomfort, you come back. And doing that, you gradually re-expand that zone of resilience and reclaim your life. And you can become a more open, resilient human being who's able to live their lives more fearlessly and courageously and stay in relate. And it's not your comfort zone. We're not talking about the comfort zone because you can deal with very uncomfortable stuff, but still have the resilience to stay in that conscious, relational, resilient responsive mode to it rather than getting triggered back and having old tapes from your childhood start running and you're you're basically operating in a very habitual mechanical fear and survival based way so that's really the work for all of us i mean our brains are set up to either operate from fear and survival or from openness vulnerability and courage right and so you know the, really the work is for all of us to widen that landscape of where we can live in a responsive mode with life and then help others do the same thing and then build cultures around that. You know, we were talking about the institutions in our philosophy of radical responsibility and the traditions out of which I've been trained in, you know, this, 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 this experiential faith and confidence in our innate goodness is very important, but it's our own innate goodness and in the innate goodness of others, all beings, whether they're operating from that or not, you know, uh, and, but it's also the innate goodness of society. Now that can be a tough one to swallow, but when you think about it, all the human institutions we have, you know, they're people and they were created by people. And really they were created with the motivation of how do we organize ourselves in the best way to get our mutual needs met, but they go astray. They lose their purpose and they get, they get caught up in the fear and survival-based psychology because we human beings have that, right? And so institutions lose their way and they become impersonal and they become destructive but they're not innately bad. It's just, we're all human beings. We're all trying to organize this thing and make it work. And so how can we recreate institutions that are not grounded in fear and survival, but grounded in a belief in human resilience and human goodness and human possibility, right? And that's a work that nobody's going to do it for us, right? There's no savior that's going to come along and do that for us. So it's, each, it's, it's up to each and every one of us, what we can do personally in our own lives, what we can do with our family, what we can do in our neighborhood, what we can do in a workplace, what we can do in whatever whatever social structures we participate in life, we can bring that and begin to transform that and turn it around. And actually, I, I don't know what your thoughts are about climate change. Maybe you have a different view on climate emergency, but personally, I've studied it a lot for the last five years and looked at the data. And I think it's pretty serious. And I think, I think you know, the clock's ticking that we need to transform our culture 
and uh, in many ways, economically, uh, you know, in terms of how we're living on the planet and creating a new economy. And, and if we, we need to learn to thrive on all levels and, and our choices are going to start reducing. So I think the game's up and it's really time for us to all do our inner work and then come together and do the work together. Yeah, I love all that. And the, uh, the debate on climate change uh, would be a whole nother episode in itself. And you probably know more than I do. My study in that field is the institutions and organizations that uh, don't have positive intention. And uh, there's a lot of track record, a lot of money and a lot of stuff that they say um, to institute things that do not have our, our uh, you know, humanity's benefit. One quick example would be confessions of an economic hitman and things like that to run countries and stuff like that. So, you know, you know, you know what know my that- take on all that is, I'm going to tell you, Go ahead. is, is to not, all that's true, right? I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, there's corruption in the world at all levels and it's always been there. I, I watch with, with my, uh, my sweetheart, my wife, Sophie, you know, we, 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 uh, we allow ourselves like one Netflix episode of something a night, you know, just relax together and watch something. We watch all these historical dramas, right? Stuff back in the Middle Ages, before the Middle Ages, we watch all the stuff of the Vikings. Now we're watching something that took place in Britain after World War One. you know, so we watch a lot of stuff. I mean, it's always the level of corruption, you know, it's just always, and, it, and, it, and it's, always, it's always been there. But when we, when we see it as something outside of ourselves, we disempower ourselves. It's us. There is no them. We have all the same, you know, everything we might ascribe to the bad motivations of somebody else, the economic hitman, the, the big pharma taking advantage. And it's not to say that these things aren't wrong and we don't need to change them and we don't need to bear witness to the truth. But at the same time, we all have the same tendency. Like if I can see myself, yeah, I'm, I'm just as, I'm potentially just as, as greedy as big pharma is. And I'm working to not have that run my life. But that's very different than going, no, I'm pure and big pharma is evil, right? And I don't think we're ever really going to change the world from that place of I'm good and the world's bad, right? I think, I think we really need to embrace the whole thing and realize it's us. There ain't nobody but us. And, and you know, it's people just like me that created big pharma. And there's people working in big pharma who they think they're just living good lives and working their jobs and taking care of their families. They don't realize they're involved in big, some big economic, you know, destructive thing. And it's not that big pharma does all bad, you know, they bring some medicines that have really benefited lots of people. So I think all this stuff, the more, and it's not to be in denial about the destructive things or be naive about, you know, all the economic corrupting forces at all. I mean, you get me railing about the big banks, you know, the big, the big banks have been involved with the drug cartels from from the get go. Right. And they get busted for it and then they pay a fine and go on. I mean, there's so much corruption in our world. But if I just see it as out there, you know, it's not going to change. I try to embrace where's my corruption? How do I participate in this? You know, and uh, that's where I think the real change is going to happen. Well, I, I love that. And I'm glad that uh, you're aware of those things and you address them because uh, I feel like the n- regular population, mostly unaware of some of those intentions. And I comes for me, it's the intent, right? What is your intention, right? At the small scale and the large scale. And one of the words I like, somebody said, I said it wrong. I have no idea, but it's egregor. And it's like the spirit of something like the spirit of the business, right? So your institutes, right? That you've created. It's like, oh, what's that spirit? Like, what's the spirit of Coca-Cola, the, of Disney, of, of the flight center or whatever the case may be of the company, right? It, it, what's the intent of this podcast? What's the spirit of it? And so there, there are people who are intend positive. There are people who intend negative, but I, I like what you're saying about, 
your own responsibility for who you are and how you see that, because that's the only place change is going to happen. And even if it is true, it's still disempowering to say, okay, right, that's happening, but I have no power over it. How am I going to respond and be the example that I want to see? And I was just talking to a friend of mine at the gym who's kind of been struggling with understanding some of these things he didn't recognize and say, oh, whoa, this is actually going on. And I said, you know, you know, if let's say the whole world is unhealthy, the best thing that you can do is be an example of health is to be an example of truth, be an example of goodness. Um, and those who want to, you know, uh, learn from you or, or um, walk that path, you're the living example. And I feel like in these challenging times of uncertainty and challenge, the best thing that you can do is to be the best example of what you want to show the best example of what you want to see in the world and, and overcoming fear is a massive part of it. So I, I certainly agree with that aspect. And so for those people who are kind of seeing some things in the world that they don't agree with, right. We could go down any kind of rabbit hole yeah. on that one saying, you know, uh, there's a great quote that I've been going on it. Cause I want to know if I'm, if I'm doing right, you know, one of my my studies was why we had war and starvation. It never made any sense to me. And I learned it was being architected. So I did feel like I was, I can't change that, right? Looking at human trafficking, some of the other stuff, big banks, I can't change it. Um, but what can I do? What What's the thing that I can do to help my fellow man? How do I be of service to other people? So um, that's kind of the quest that I've been on. And I'm just curious, how do you, what would you say to people who kind of learn like, oh, there is a bit of a, some things that, maybe are not positive. How can I navigate this thing still with a level of uh, um, productivity? Because, oh yeah. The quote is going to say is anything that seeks to restrict or bind by definition is Luciferian. And I've always loved that one. It's by uh, Rudolf Steiner. And that's, that's the idea is like, you know, you could have your beliefs. That's okay. But I don't want to be bound by them. Right. If you right. believe this is good for you, I, maybe I, I believe something else. Can I please, exist without that and so it's become it's creating a lot of fear in different people and uh, i've seen some crazy stuff going on there so just curious your thoughts on that yeah no i like uh, really what you said and uh yeah i'm gonna say a couple things that, that may seem a bit radical here but um you know that there's no question that uh there is uh you know evil afoot in the world now i don't believe as evil as really like an entity but I think it's really just a human condition run amok. And, you know, uh, we have so much, I would say in our culture globally, we have, we're carrying an unsustainable load of internalized shame and trauma. It's just in the culture. And every time there's another war, another refugee crisis, another child gets abused, another sex, you know, sex traffic, another, you know, sexual abuse, another, you know, all the horrible stuff that happens to human beings. We're adding to that 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 load of internalized shame and trauma that we experience. People growing up are under extreme poverty. People growing up under racism. People growing up under homophobia. Whatever it might be, the trauma people go through gets internalized, and that internalized shame and trauma is going to come out as violence. It's going to come out as greed. It's going to come out as all this stuff endlessly. So I think if we want a different world, we got to really work hard to stop adding to that, right? And, you know, to prevent the wars, to prevent the refugee crises, to prevent the sex trafficking and to prevent the child abuse. We need to be doing everything we can to prevent that stuff. And then we need to really focus on how do we bring healing to people. But in terms of, you know, seeing clearly there are institutions and, and organizations in the world where you can see recognize, yeah, that is really standing in a, a positive spirit and a positive intention. And that's really clear. And this institution over here really seems to have lost its way. 
and you know really questionable intent or maybe we may think it actually just has a, a complete destructive greedy intent from the get-go but i would ask us to question that i would if we looked deeply enough almost into any institution we would find there was an original beneficial intent somewhere even way back and even when we look into the way they get taken over or even if somebody you know starts something from the get-go he somebody starts a criminal gang that seems to have a pretty evil intent right from the get-go right but what what's that coming out of that's coming out of a human being suffering like why do people get caught up in 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 losing their way and and having institutions and corporations and or be, be overtaken with ill intent uh and and how do people get we get caught up in that because of our suffering and what are we trying we're all trying to get our needs met we're all trying to get our needs met what are our basic needs food warm shelter uh belonging connection relationship love self-autonomy self-agency creative expression respect we all have the exact same needs and all human beings every day spend their whole day trying to get their needs met the problem is that a lot of us have our strategies really suck you know i mean as long as the dalai lama said again and again that all human beings are the universal quality in all human beings that we all want to we all want to feel happy and we all want to be safe and secure all human beings now people kill for that reason people do horrible stuff for that reason because they're psych they've been psychologically traumatized they they've experienced psychological damage and so what they see from their place of fear and survival is the way to stay safe myself you know and to keep myself safe and okay and have what i want and what i think i need is to go do this x thing to to carjack somebody or whatever or to run a corrupt bank or you know whatever and a lot of them are in the midst of it they they are don't even realize they're you know some i mean in those extreme examples examples sure and somebody gets in a very sociopathic place because of psychological damage but a lot of the people working out in the world of institutions that we think have maybe ill intent or we think are involved in major economic corruption or so forth most of the people in those institutions don't even realize that they're just going to work right so i think the more we can realize that all human beings every day are doing the best to try to meet their needs you know um uh i love the work of uh marshall rosenberg called um 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 nbc nonviolent communication he he trained people all over the world and did a lot of conflict resolution it's a huge international movie he's no longer with us he died a number of years ago and i knew him personally he would get up in front of audiences and say you know uh no human being ever made a mistake they only operated to get their needs met with insufficient information and people in the audience would just go nuts with that and then it pushed people even further he bring up the example of uh of child molesters or sexual predators or people you know doing sexual abuse on children right and he would say you know these are people who are just trying to get their needs met in the most beautiful way they know how and people would just start going crazy in the audience you know and he'd say look we all want them to stop these behaviors we find these behaviors abhorrent and horrific and of course it's terrifying especially for those of us who are parents and maybe some of us suffered sexual abuse when we were children or other kinds of abuse emotional and physical abuse but until if we want these people to change until you know and we can interact with them in a way therapeutically until they get that we get that they're just trying to get their needs met in the most beautiful way they know how there's no possibility of relationship if we get to that point with them then maybe we can get them engaged in a discussion about strategy 
right? That maybe there's other ways you could learn to get your needs met that wouldn't be so destructive to another human being, right? But before we can get in that relationship with anybody, we have to give them empathy. Why do people behave in those ways? Because they're not in an empathic state. They're, they're disconnected from the harm they're creating, right? We cannot create harm on another being around society unless we're disconnected from the harm we're creating, right? And why do we get disconnected? Because we're disconnected from our own hearts, because we haven't received enough love and empathy ourselves, or we've been too traumatized. So what you were seeing in the destructive behavior of other human beings or the greedy behavior, the corrupt behavior is suffering human beings who have not received enough empathy and love in their lives. They're disconnected from the impact their behaviors are having on others. And, and so they're able to keep proceeding. So how is the way out of this? Because we can think endlessly about there's all these bad people and doing bad things. And here's the good people. And somehow if we can get enough good people and get rid of the bad people, it's never going to work that way. Somehow we have to find the transformative way into everybody's heart and invite more and more people to get there, to get healed and to get healed because all the, all the bad stuff we see in the world, you know, there, there's a prison program. A friend of mine runs out in California. It's a really powerful program in San Quentin, maximum security prison, where they bring together a group of guys for a whole year and they form what they call a tribe and they give it a name. And the name has to do with how many seconds were involved in the decision that got them all in the maximum security. Most of them are lifers. Like, you know, it was 10 seconds and they got emotion, shot somebody or whatever. And then how many years did they get? So they, they do that really. And they, and they go through this really powerful year long problem. It's called guiding rage into power or grip. And, and I watched a, a video of one of his programs. One, and one of, the, one of the men, one of the lifers in his groups, one of them said, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. And then another guy said, yeah, and healed people, heal people. Which is that idea of the wounded healer, Henry Nguyen's book, The Wounded Healer. So I think the more we can operate from that place with compassion for ourselves and compassion for others and that level of human understanding that the stuff, the, the destructive, terrible stuff we see in the world is just the manifestation of human trauma. And, and, and we can, instead, instead of getting, you know, I'm not saying we don't need to try to, we need to do everything we can to prevent and stop and control destructive behavior on other human beings. But if we can do that from a place of compassion and not othering other people, but realizing this is all of us, this is, you know, we're all really one body, all of humanity. You know, I would like to think I'm on the good team, right? I'm on the good team and there's all that crap over there. No, we're all one body. And, and so we all, we, none of us get to be fully enlightened until we're all enlightened. So we're all on this journey together. So anyway, that may seem pretty radical, but I think it's necessary if we're really going to see real transformation in life, because otherwise we're just thinking, you know, it's like, it's like sports. I'm on the good team. You know, that's my home team. That's the bad team, you know? Right. Well, well, yeah, some of that is uh, radical, um, but I, I definitely see the fundamental of the idea of hurt people, hurt people. And I've never heard the idea of healed people, heal people. So I love that. And another thing that you brought up, it's, it's people who do harm are, are disconnected from their soul. They're disconnected from their spirit. And if they were uh, loved and taken care of, the chances of them doing those things are almost non-existent. So looking at, you know, healing ourselves, healing our friends, but also the way, you know, my, I have a big one in education and all these other things in social media and, and understanding the psychology of what's being put out, you know, those systems and changing them. One of the things that I, I feel like we could transform the world really quickly is 
you know, all, now with social media is now different, but social media, TV shows, radio, and the news and how we structure all these different things. And, you know, so I definitely agree that it is people who are disconnected from their soul, disconnected from their spirit, not love that are able to do harm. And so the more we can be the example ourselves and promote systems of healing. Um, and then, you know, and then on the other side of it too, is like, you, you see at the same time, you stand up for what's right. If somebody's being sure. harmed, you go help them. If there's truth to be said, you go say it. If someone is causing harm and you know it, you call it out. And uh, that's kind of my, my thought anyway. And we need good people to kind of stand for that and say, Hey, look, you know, we can have compassion for it, but we're not going to let it slide. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, no, ab like, ab absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll so make one final point. I know we need to wrap up, but I want to yeah. finish one point on this. So back to Marshall Rosenberg talking about, people who get involved in sexual predation, right? So it's quite natural that we get really angry at them. We get terrified of that behavior, scared for our children, abhorrent, right? And so what do we do? What 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 do we do? We we approach we we flood them with shaming, right? And you know, we've seen all kinds of things where they make them wear pink jumpsuits and jails and you know all kinds of shaming behaviors and we make them register. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do everything we can to prevent them from harming another child. We should absolutely do everything we can to keep them from preventing uh, another harm another child. Although most predator are not, most of it's not serial. There's a subset of the, or, that are pretty incurable. Most, most of it is treatable. But at any rate, when we shame people, what we don't realize is we're actually triggering their behavior because people are addicted to shame and we act out to get that shame. And this is really a key psychological distinction here because when we're little tykes, we come out of the mother's womb and we're just in a symbiotic symbiosis state with the mother, this unit. And, but at some point we can't go back to the womb. We have to start individuating and we have to start figuring things out. And we start developing a self-structure to navigate the world. Well, I guess I'm here and I'm not, and there's other people over there and they're bigger than I am. And I got to get my needs met. And we start operating from love me, don't hit me, love me, don't leave me. And we start developing our whole personality and our whole neurosis and all the rest of it and our whole self-structure. And we build it out of whatever is there. Right. And we basically reality is groundless and impermanent. That is reality. But when we're six months old, we don't know how to deal with that. It's hard enough to deal with that when we're adults, even if we have a really deep meditation practice that deal with the actual impermanence and fluidity and groundlessness of life. So we need reference points and we hang on the reference points to build our self-structure. Well, one of the most powerful reference points there is, is shame. Shame is the emotion of when you're unwanted, you're rejected, you're going to be kicked out, you're unloved, you're unworthy. And shame is like, it is a powerful emotion. So we get that hit of shame, boom, right? And so it becomes a powerful reference point in our life. And as adults, we will seek shaming because it's like, it's home. It's physiologically, psychologically, emotionally home. And we get that hit of shame. Okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going down that black hole of nothingness. I'm here. And that's why People get involved in all kinds of self-sabotaging behaviors and a lot of addictive behaviors and sexual predation. It's all self-shaming behavior. They're actually seeking the shame. So when we respond to them with shame, we're actually fueling their addictive patterns. And that's why no one is ever going to therapeutically change by other, other, any other means than receiving love, compassion, and support and love. And that doesn't mean justifying anybody's behavior. And it doesn't mean coddling people. And it doesn't mean not making boundaries with people. But love heals and shaming just creates further trauma and further feeds people further into the depths of their illness, whatever it is. 
Wow. Well, that's certainly a tough one. Um, as long as you know, I could go into like that all day because I do have a daughter and I don't know, maybe I, I got, I'm trying. Yeah, maybe they're healing as a therapist, but holy smokes. Like I, but I know what you mean as far as, uh, the solution goes. I, I'm reminded of this, uh, um, video clip I saw where this guy had murdered, uh, he, I think he had actually raped and murdered like four women or something. And he was convicted and, uh, the families got to say something right. And every one of them, you know, told him to rot in hell and burn and screamed and whatever. But the last guy came up and said, you know, if I'm going to walk the way of Jesus, he was, uh, um, obviously religious. He said, I'd have to figure out a way to give you uh, forgiveness and, uh, said that. And then the guy started crying. Cause he was like mean mugging mm -hmm. the whole time. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's about the most awful thing that anybody could imagine. And there is some other stuff going on behind the scenes with that stuff. So it does need to stop, but we need to figure out the solution. So yeah. And some a, people may not be curable. I can think yeah. of some people may not be curable in this lifetime and may need to just stay locked up, but we can still treat them with some kind of dignity, right? Either they are a human being, but a lot of people are changeable. And, um, and, you know, I, I don't say this naively. You know, I work in prisons. That's, that's my life. I work with prisoners. And I work with people who have created all kinds of harm. I go to Auschwitz. You spoke about Victor Frank, Victor Frank. I've been going to Auschwitz every year for 20 years with the Zen peacemakers leading Bearing Witness retreats there. I founded the Bearing Witness retreats in Rwanda. I've worked with genocide survivors in Rwanda extensively, right? So I, I work around this kind of, of horror, right? And I get And I find countless human beings who in the midst of that whore have been able to transform and, and give up on enmity and find their way into forgiveness and healing and how transformative it is. And it's not a requirement. You know, if somebody's not ready to, to go there and, you know, and, and, you know, it's not, it's not like saying somebody's wrong because something horrible happened to their family member and they can't forgive, but it's just like, you know, when we hold on to that, who's suffering in the end, who's suffering, you know, I think it was an old, I think it was Lao Tzu said, you know, when we hold, grievances and enmity against someone else. It's like taking poison and wanting them to suffer. Right. Yeah. Well, well, I appreciate your work and going to those places because, you know, like, yeah, those are Rwanda and things like that are, are horrible. I was in uh, Cambodia and been to a couple of places similar and learned a lot of stuff. So uh, I appreciate you and the work that you do. And thank you for coming on the show. Uh, for people who want to stay in touch, where do they go to find out more and follow your work? Yeah, you can go to my basic website, fleetmall.com. Uh, all my summits and the online courses I offer are through HeartMind Institute, which is heartmindinstitute.co, just co. Uh, the prison work, prisonmindfulness.org. Um, and uh, but even just starting off in my basic website, fleetmall.com, you'll probably be able to find your way into the other places of the work I do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I invite the audience to check out your book. Uh, it looks amazing. So appreciate the work you do in the world, and uh, thank you for making a difference. Yeah, they can check out the book actually at radicalresponsibilitybook.com and you can read all about the book there and, and uh, what other authors have had to say about it. And then you can actually order it from there uh, through Amazon or whatever other book supplier right from that website. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks everybody Thank for you, watching. Matt. My Thank pleasure. you for having me. Peace. 
There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal Dr. Fleet Mall. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. It was incredibly powerful over here on this end, recording it and listening to him. Uh, please do what you can. Share this as far and as wide as you can on every single platform. Tell all your friends about it. Uh, getting the word out there is so paramount now. They're literally just crushing me everywhere. You can find me on Odyssey. You can find me on Rockfin. You can find me on Telegram. And it sucks because they're not you know, as popular as YouTube and Facebook and all that kind of stuff yet. Uh, but you know, please do that, you know, become a member at mattbelair.com. And uh, yeah, they let me on YouTube and then they delete me right away. Uh, they deleted my Patreon unless I obey to them, which I will not do. I'm going to spread the truth no matter what. I'm going to maintain my integrity no matter what. And I'm going to do the right thing no matter what, even if they hit my bank account and they delete my stuff and they do everything they can do. It's not going to change what I do. So it would really be helpful if you guys can support in a very small way. If you want to become a member at mattbelair.com and even toss in a dollar a month uh, there's a few donations over there um, but if you don't see what what you'd like to donate then you just hit me up even for free mad at zenathlete.com and i'll make you a link so thank you so much for listening i appreciate you guys i'm wishing you all the best i know we are going to get through this check out the choose freedom law summit there's solutions for absolutely everything that we will be facing and so just uh, hold your head up hold the faith uh, and just be the solution in your community so thank you so much for listening let's come into a state of peace and coherence Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with peace, joy, contentment, enthusiasm, courage, faith, and get ready to enjoy the rest of your day. So thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful day.